You're listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. Sat down on the couch. I got ready for a spectacular weekend of college basketball. I hunkered down. Nothing was going to get between me and the joy of watching the madness continue. And instead, we got mostly duds. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM, Channel 80, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. We're presented by Progressive Insurance. All of our guests join us on the Goodyear hotline. And the basketball action is continuing, Sarah. But I got to be honest, I definitely picked the wrong brackets to get excited about. I was all pumped coming into the weekend for the men's side. The women's side gave us some tremendous games. The men's side gave us a bunch of reasons for me to fight the re- like resist the need to nap. I'll tell you what. I thought there were some good men's games, but I think the worst possible scheduling to try to convince people that the men's games were the exciting highlight of the weekend was to go for that incredible Yukon-Iowa game. High pace, almost no free throws, back and forth. You know, dominant, awesome play right to that brutal Loyola-Oregon State game. I mean, Mm. it was like, all of a sudden, (laughs) hit the brakes, beautiful basketball right into can't hit the broadside of a barn. And I personally, Sarah Spain, on this show today, would like to apologize. I, I didn't think it was possible, but me bringing up the last meeting of these two teams to Porter Mosier, the Loyola head coach, may very well have jinxed Chicago's squad. Here's what it sounded like when we spoke last week. You'll be taking on... Oregon State, 12th seeded. So I've got a two-parter. Number one, do you think it'll be higher scoring than the first meeting, which was a 31-19 Loyola victory in 1927? Uh, Can we guarantee, guarantee a higher score? (laughs) Sarah, if we don't have a higher score, oh, Coach Tinkle and me are going to have, we're going to see each other in the offseason. Well, it was very close, Fitz. <laughs> I mean, the funny thing is, and, and I, I, I appreciate your willingness to come out and take the blame for it. Mm. I found myself doing the humble brag to some buddies uh, as the game was tipping off. I was like, man, I'm rooting for loyal in this one. You know, I was like, I don't want to <laughs> say friend of the show. But, oh, yeah. you know, at this point, coach has been on a few times. Got a good vibe. I, I'm going to say friend of the show. And then all of a sudden it was, where's your friend of the show? Those were the texts that I was getting throughout no. the course of it. And it, you're right. I mean, uh, we saw. Loyola team that just came to a screech, both teams, frankly, came to a screeching halt when it came to actually being able to shoot at all. I mean, it was 24-16 at the half. They were a little better in the second (laughs) half, but I mean, I was watching the first half of it thinking, this looks like a terrible, terrible high school game at this point. Like, nobody could hit anything. It was ugly, Fitz, and it's a perfect example for me to just remind people that you can have great high-scoring games, you can have great low-scoring games, you can have men's players who miss a layup and look like trash, you can have women's players who make terrible passes and look bad. It doesn't mean the entire product is that way, and in this case, unfortunately, it wasn't a good defensive battle. Yes, Oregon State actually did play some really good defense. They were quick moving around the court. I thought they did a nice job of shutting down what Loyola was trying to do, but it wasn't pretty basketball. It wasn't a good game they came out on top good for them but it it just it just reminded you that um you were hoping for better and and there was some better I'm not gonna dog the entire men's slate obviously the end of that UCLA game was wild until a completely one-sided overtime um you know we we saw Arkansas Oral Roberts was a close game Arkansas Oral Roberts kept it kept it tight there um but I have to admit this and I don't say this every year. This is not my bias towards women's sports. 
I think the women's tournament has been better. I have enjoyed and gotten more into the games on the women's side this year than the men's. There's just a lot of tight games, a lot of like really beautiful basketball. Talk about Texas, Maryland. This is a Maryland team averaging 91 points a game that was beating the brakes off everyone in front of them. Texas holds them to their lowest score of the season in a Sweet 16 matchup, and that's why the finish sounded like this. That is it! The Texas Longhorns, with a shocking upset of Maryland, are headed to the Elite Eight! It was huge. I mean, the 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 excitement from the players with their coach, who we're going to talk to later on in the show tonight, um, that was fun to watch. You're just you're looking at a team that's outperforming and who did everything right against a Terps squad that looked like world beaters. It looked like a buzzsaw that no one was going to get through with the offense that they were putting up. And kind of wild to see a sixth seed Texas and and Vic Schaefer crash the crash the the, the elite eight. Well, absolutely. And look, I said last week at highest scoring Maryland team, men's or women's in history coming in, uh, and they absolutely, uh, the wheels fell off for that Maryland offense. Kudos to Texas for getting it done. Also, to your point, when you talk about which side of it has been more entertaining to watch, I mean, on Saturday, we had sort of the best of both worlds. You had big brands, which are always going to play in college sports, right? So we know that. But you had big brands and big stars that came out and played their tails off. It was fun to watch the hype. I felt like even though Iowa-UConn wasn't particularly a close game, it was still a fun game to watch. And then the and they kept the it Saturday, closer than we thought. They kept it yeah. a lot closer than people expected, to be honest, because that Iowa team wasn't really supposed to be in it. It was supposed to be the Paige and Caitlin show, which it ended up not being as much because a couple of those UConn girls were like, excuse me, pardon me. I'm so sorry to interrupt, but my name is Kristen Williams and I would like everyone to know that. Uh, excuse me, I'm Avina <laughs> Westbrook. I would like you to know that I was brilliant tonight. Um, but the rest of the Iowa team, I have to give them credit. They kept it closer than it was supposed to be. Yeah, Kristen, by the way, with 27 points in that game. And then the rest of that Saturday slate, I mean, the Michigan-Baylor game goes to overtime, and it was a beautiful game to watch. Mm-hmm. The Indiana-NC State game, we get our first number one seed that falls in the tournament as Indiana beats uh, NC State by three. I mean, those games were, you used the word beautiful earlier, it, it, they were great, well-played basketball games. And that's what yeah. I was missing, particularly on Saturday. On the men's side, it just felt like everything was clunky. And on the women's side, it felt like everything looked really good. I, I give them a lot of credit. I thought, I thought Saturday was a great day for the NCAA tournament on the women's side. I completely agree, and I do think it is very clear from watching year after year how much better the product gets. That's the result of so many things. But guess what? You invest, you give interest, you get to watch some of the some of the best teams like UConn inspire teams across the country to have to improve if they want to compete. You look at the parity that we talked about coming into the women's tournament this year, and it's all playing out, right? You're getting those great top-level teams that we were expecting, the UConns, the Stanford, South Carolina. Three of the four number one seeds make it to the Elite Eight. You got the twos in Baylor and Louisville. But then you've got these upstarts, like you mentioned, Indiana, Texas, Arizona, these teams that are trying to push for how many women's squads are really at the upper echelon. It used to be so one-sided. We used to remember talk about is UConn ruining women's basketball. No, this is the result of that. This is all the programs across the country needing to get better, more professional, better resources, better assets, better recruiting so that they can keep up. And now the product is so good. And as a result, we get a stacked night tonight on Spain and Fitz. We will make sure that you're kept up to date on all of the action going on. UConn taking on Baylor tonight, a one taking on a two. It's 9-4 to four right now. 
That game is obviously early. It is just tipped. And so uh, a lot of action happening across the board. We've also got Indiana taking on Arizona uh, over the course of tonight, too, on the women's side. On the men's side, a couple of games also. Houston will be taking on Oregon State and Baylor taking on Arkansas. So we'll keep you up to date on everything while we're on air so that you don't have to miss anything in the process. In the meantime, the Nets added yet another piece over the weekend, but at least one person was not excited about the move at all. You'll hear it. We'll debate it. That's next. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio. You're listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. I feel like if we were playing fantasy basketball and everybody was just drawing names like cards, there'd be this moment on Saturday where Nets fans were talking a lot of trash with the Aldridge coming to Brooklyn. And then all of a sudden, Lakers fans are saying, don't worry, we'll take your Aldridge and raise you a drum. And we are in this spot where we are getting mega teams on two different coasts that seem to be on a clear set battle that will end in the championship. But the question is, does everybody else agree with that? Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM, Channel 80, presented by Progressive Insurance. Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz, let's get straight to some straight talk, brought to you by Straight Talk Wireless. And Sarah, I mean, I found myself just salivating, I'll be honest, as I was reading the news of the Nets just continually. It feels like every week they add another big name. If this were video games, you'd want him on your team player and and I keep thinking man that's a lot of ammunition to take on LeBron and AD like that this is all about beating two guys down like I feel like the entire neighborhood is getting everybody that's ever <laughs> lived in the neighborhood to come up and say we're taking on these two bullies but then the Lakers turn around and said hey we got Drummond so we've got sort of a third you know bully coming in and added to this and it feels like we're on this collision course for a championship matchup that could give us this ultimate heroes and villains and good guys and bad guys and everybody Hating mega teams. I mean, this is just sort of the the feast that the NBA's got to be dreaming of for their final. Yeah, I mean, it felt inevitable, sort of. We had heard about it, and we figured if you're going to pick a squad to team up with after a buyout, it, it's going to be these two that are looking for those added pieces, especially uh, knowing that we already seen Griffin, Blake Griffin, go to the Nets. But it's interesting to see the responses, right? Frank Vogel, of course, is going to express a ton of positivity about Andre Drummond coming his way. Um, He said, quote, he's one of the best centers in the league, someone that every defensive coordinator is going to have to account for and to figure out how to handle him when they're trying to slow down AD and LeBron and our guards. I think he's going to give us a big lift in the immediate future and then obviously when we get going. Of course, in the immediate future, with with LeBron and AD out, it's going to be big. But down the road, which is what they're really getting people for in the presumed, you know, postseason deep in the postseason – there are those who don't think he makes them that much better. And that was kind of surprising to me, mainly just because even if he's not the guy he used to be, um, you're you're just going to have a, a, a refresher in the lineup, a great rebounder. You know, he was over 17 points and 13 boards in his starts with Cleveland. For that to not be a big deal was shocking, but this is what Brian Windhorst said on GameNet on ESPN Radio. Yeah, I don't know how much he'll play when they're fully whole in – intense moments because I believe that the Lakers are at their best when Anthony Davis plays center. But he's so fragile with injuries that you don't want to play him a lot there. And so the Lakers haven't invested a lot in their center position over the last couple of years because they know they sort of have that trump card they can go to. So in the interim, Andre Drummond is one of the best rebounders in the last 25 years in the NBA. The guy rebounds at an all-time elite level. And so you will see that definitely make an impact. And he can score. Um, you know, and the Lakers at times, especially without AD and LeBron, I mean, they have difficulty putting the ball in the basket. So short term, getting a guy with that kind of offensive talent, I mean, it can't help to improve them. 
I don't think it's a game-changing move uh, in the grand scheme of things because, when, like I said, when they're whole, I don't think he's going to be out there when it matters. And if they're not whole, it's not going to matter. I think, of course, he meant can't hurt to help them or, you know, won't, won't you know, be, be a detriment to them. Um, but Fitz, did you think he downplayed it more than what the result could be? I'm trying to figure out who cooked, you know, who kicked Wendy in the shin. Like, I mean, I feel like he's, he's pooping in my Sounds Wheaties like right there. Like, I mean, the, the, <laughs> look, I, there are, there are two ways that I can look at this one uh, with the Lakers. I could say, okay, they're going to figure out a way just like we can. How, how often do we say with the Nets? Well, you can't get everybody the ball. I mean, uh, the Lakers can make adjustments and, and I would think find ways to get everybody involved in this. But the other side of it is even if they don't, even if Drummond is essentially just a, a distant, distant third in all of this. He gives them depth at a higher level than, I mean, I hate to say the word depth with Drummond because I think it, it, under, it undervalues what he contributes. But at the end of the day, if I believe that this is a two-man Lakers team, it just became two men and like a, a buddy with the Wolfpack. So I, I feel great about it for the Lakers. I don't know why Wendy wouldn't. Yeah, I, I do think um, you're not worrying as much about what his role is. If you're a player who played well but ultimately – was the recipient of a buyout and brought your services to a contender, I think you know what your role is. Um, so I'm not worried about him fitting in. I think he's a great change-up when they need to give LeBron and AD a rest, especially considering injuries, right? Um, and I think, for me, this just solidifies my opinion of them as the number one seed. It's been that way all year. They certainly are lacking depth. It's obviously a problem when one of their two big guys is out. But if they come back healthy in the postseason, they're the number one for me. And I was shocked to hear Kendrick Perkins say, and this I think might have been before it was official with Drummond, but everyone knew that was going to happen. He still has the Clippers as the number one seed. Here's what he said. They're number one. They're number one. And and here's why. Clippers were missing one thing, a leader, a floor general. And I said it in the offseason that they needed to uh, go out and sign Rondo in the free agency, but they didn't. And they went, got him, and made it, and went, picked him up before the trade deadline. Was a huge pickup because the reason that the Clippers struggles at struggle at times is because Kawhi and PG don't have their legs in the fourth quarter because they're asked to do something that they're not used to doing, and that's being playmakers, bringing the ball up the floor, getting guys in sets. That's not what they do. They get buckets, and on the defensive end, they lock you up. Now adding Rajon Rondo takes pressure off of everyone. Kawhi, PG, Ty Lue, everyone. He is the ultimate leader. You need that guy in that locker room. So for me, it's kind of like, remember at one point I said I'm going to stop picking against Aaron Rodgers, Tom Brady, and LeBron James, and then I moronically changed my stance on Tom Brady, and we know what happened there. I feel the same mm-hmm. way about the Clippers, but in the opposite sense. I was riding for the Clippers the last <laughs> couple of years. I kept saying the fact that these players are, you know, DNP and we haven't seen the whole roster together. They're going to be rested. They're going to be the most adjusted to a bubble where a lot of things are going to be different. They've got a bunch of lineups that have played together. They're ready to go. Right? The Clippers, I'm out. I think Rondo is a huge addition. I think he will help. I absolutely am not placing them above the Lakers. Yeah, I totally agree with you. And by the way, let's all remember that if the Lakers were really that infatuated with Rondo, they could have found a way to keep him. They didn't, right? I mean, Rondo is back in L.A. because ultimately at some point last year after the season, the Lakers let him walk. I mean, he didn't sign. I think it was $14 million over two years. I mean, that's not an insane amount of money. 
And in today's creativity of the NBA, they, they didn't get it done. So while they obviously enjoyed each other, they felt good about you know letting him walk away. Now, by the way, while we're just sort of poo-pooing on everything, let's just, let's just share the love here because Aldridge to the Nets was a big part of what started this entire landslide of positivity to all of these big moves for me. But it wasn't the case. You mentioned Wendy earlier on game night on ESPN Radio. He also said that signing for the Nets, Aldridge, eh, not that much. I'm not really excited about the LaMarcus Aldridge edition. I know that a lot of people were hyperventilating about the idea of them adding another big-name player. Uh, you know, he may help them in a playoff game or two because he has the ability to have breakout games. And if, and if he does help them in a playoff game or two, then he will have delivered. I really like what they've been getting out of their second-year center, uh, Nick Claxton, who is this really athletic, rangy um, big man who can switch out and defend on people. He can, um, you know, he can put the ball in the basket a little bit. He had been playing great, and if they if they reduce his playing time to force Lamarcus Aldridge out there, I don't know if that's what they need. I think their victory on Lamarcus Aldridge is that they kept him away from their competition. They kept him away from Miami. They kept him away from the Lakers or the Clippers uh, or the Celtics. In that regard, it's a victory. I don't think it really materially changes their their uh, chances to win the whole thing. Okay, I mean, we're number one, straight talk, straight talk, wireless, no contracts, no compromise. From Wendy, go ahead, sir. I was just going to say he'd mentioned being hysterical. I am simultaneously trying to listen and getting hysterical over the pace of this UConn game already against Baylor. It's going to kill us all. I just want you to know that <laughs> it, just based on the first couple minutes. Uh, secondarily, there's only 26 games into the playoff start. You've got seven players on this Nets team trying to figure out who's going to really take the dominant role in four spots in the postseason. I just don't think there's that much time to get him really acclimated to the team. So I think he's a good addition, but I agree with Wendy. They're already stacked. It's more about the big guys than it is what he can do. It's mostly that he's not on another team helping them. Yeah, well, I just want to have nice things. You know, what we've learned is that <laughs> we're not easily impressed. I, I just want to be excited <laughs> about something in this NBA season. Get excited about this hoop Sarah game, mentioned man. it. <laughs> UConn up on Baylor, 26-24 at the end of the first. I mean, this thing absolutely will keep you updated on it. Coming up, we'll talk to a coach one win away from the Final Four. We'll do it next. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. That's right. The nice story that we all enjoyed of the Oregon squad and Sedona Prince ended by a Louisville team that was red hot. Or is it white hot? We'll have to ask our next guest. It's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz, ESPN Radio, ESPN App, Sirius XM, Channel 80. Don't forget to subscribe to the Spain and Fitz podcast. You can find some digital-only content as well as stuff from the show that you missed. Joining us now on the Goodyear Hotline, Louisville women's head coach Jeff Waltz. Coach, thanks for the time. I, I appreciate it. Thank you. So was it white hot or red hot yesterday? Which one? Uh, I'd stick with with red hot for sure. Okay, yeah. I mean, it is the colors of the school. Uh, before yeah. we move on to your Elite Eight uh, challenger, what was the difference for Evans in that game yesterday? That was a breakout game, basically scored as much as she had combined in the two before. Yeah, you know what? I thought she let she let the game come to her. Uh, you know, the first few ball games, actually our past four or five, I think she'd been pressing – and wanting to play so well that I think at times it actually hurt her. And in the get ball game last night, she just let it come to her. Yeah, she actually started off, I think, over four, but took good shots. And then as the rhythm started going, and again, her teammates did a great job of finding her, 
she started to knock down a, a couple and the confidence started to come back. And, you know, she, she, she played a really, really good ball game for us. Coach, I think it's interesting because the article in ESPN.com talks about some of the people she reached out to and reached out to her to sort of help her get get that mindset going into it. But as a coach, when you've got somebody that's accomplished as much as she has in her career but is in a slump, how do you find the line between sort of helping her get out of that slump and also making sure that you're protecting your team? Well, I mean, it's a fine line for sure, and it's really just trying trying to make sure you sit down and you watch film with uh, with, with that player and get, just make sure they see where – they can get others involved, making sure they're not trying to press. And, you know, for, for Dana, you know, teams were starting to blitz her and run two or three people at her when she came up a ball screen, and it was just a matter of making sure she was then finding her teammates because we, we've got a very talented team. Um, and, you know, as, as she continued to get everyone else involved, then it became easier for her. It's Spain and Fitz. We're talking to the head coach of the Louisville women, Jeff Waltz, talking especially about Dana Evans, who uh, tied a career high with 29 yesterday in their win over Oregon. Every time Oregon came knocking, she basically single-handedly shut the door in their face and helped <laughs> help Louisville pull away. That sets him up with an Elite Eight matchup versus number one Stanford. Coach, where do you even begin to figure out how to defend the weapons on Stanford? Well, it's going to take a, a great effort from us. You know, I was really pleased with how we defended in the Oregon game. Uh, you know, a team that really had us three inches at, at, at the center spot, then our four players about <laughs> five nine to their six five, uh, and we still figured out a way to play tough and hang strong, and you know, try try to make. Oregon shoot over us, and we're going to have to do the same thing in the, the, this Stanford ball game. You know, they they move extremely well at the offensive end. Uh, they pass the ball well. They get others involved. We we've got to make sure that that we're, we're getting some good ball pressure. Uh, at the same time, we can't let them get too many backdoor uh, baskets on us. They're going to get some because they run so many backdoor cuts. Um, and I'm just from watching film. I've just become become a believer that. You know, we we've got to try to disrupt some things. So our goal is to try and try and put, push them a little bit further after the basket than what they normally like to do, running their offense, and then make them shoot over us. Because then we we have to you know get that position to to rebound any missed basket. That game's tomorrow night, nine Eastern on ESPN. Number two seeded Louisville taking on number one overall seed Stanford. So, coach. You know, in a COVID world where you've got everybody isolated, how does that differ your preparation than it would usually be in this situation with a quick turnaround against a great team? Well, it's really not changing our our, pre- our preparation. I just feel for all, all these kids. Now, again, I'm, I don't want anybody to feel sorry for us because we're just grateful to be playing. Um, and we know all the hard work work that's gone into it. But, you know, you've, you, you've got families that have come down here to support, support their, their, their child and they you know, the best they can do is wave to them from from, from the stands. Uh, my wife and daughters are coming down uh, today, actually. Um, and I can't even go give my five-year-old a hug. Mm. You know, and it's just, it's one of these times where it's a year where uh, the families, the co- coaches' families really aren't able to enjoy this with, with the players. Because the, 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 the one thing about our game, and I'm sure it's the same on the men's game, but I've, I've never been on that side is, you know, the, the, my, my, my four kids have just adored all of the players throughout my, my 26 years here and, and getting to know all of them as they grow. And this has been a really tough year because 
they haven't been able to come to practice and be around the players. So it, it's it's been difficult in that way, but it's just unbelievable that we've really been able to to pull off this season and be sitting here playing in an Elite Eight a few days away from starting the Final Four. It's Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio. We're talking to Louisville women's head coach Jeff Waltz as they get ready for their Elite Eight matchup with Stanford tomorrow night on ESPN. Yeah, we've heard some stories. Champagne toasts from 10 feet away in the parking lot of the hotel or the Denny's, I think it was, for one coach celebrating a Sweet 16 birth. <laughs> so not the usual uh, nice you know, steak dinner bottle of wine kind of celebration, just staring at each other from afar with virtual hugs. But like you said, everyone doing the best they can to get the games in and to be able to compete. Um you know, Coach, I'm looking at some of the stats for both your squads, and uh, both of you are outscoring, both you and Stanford, uh, what the other opponent uh, allows per contest. But both of you have so much success when you score 50-plus, uh, 60-plus points. Are you looking to slow the pace down in this game, especially because of their ability to use those speed plays, or are you trying to push it because of your own success when you score? Yeah, we're not trying to slow, to, uh, to, to slow it down by by no means. I mean, we like to play fast. We're, we're going to push the ball in, tra- in transition. But at the same time, we don't want to take bad shots. So if it's got to be something where, where, where we push it, but the shot's not there and we use some clock, then we're going to have to use some clock. Uh, but I, I think really in our Oregon game, the, the game was slow. It, the scoring was low because of how well we defended. I mean, I haven't had a chance to break it down yet. But I, I, I'd say at least two-thirds of, of the possessions Oregon had, they did not get a shot up before probably 10 to 12 seconds left in the shot clock because we did such a good job of defending their first action. And when you do that, it's going to slow the game down. The number of, of, of possessions are going to be cut down. So we're going to try to push it, but we've got to do a good job defensively to not let Stanford just run up and down and, and, and shoot layups. Absolutely. Well, we're looking forward to it, Coach. It should be a good one. Good luck to you and your squad, and thanks for the time. Thanks, Coach. I I sure appreciate it. It's a great ball ball game on right now. That, uh, it sure. sure is. It's making me tired just watching <laughs> we're it. Trying to also, work you know, trying through. to do my job, but I'm really distracted. The pace is unreal. Uh, thanks, Coach. Uh, that's thanks, tomorrow coach. night, 9 Eastern on ESPN. You can catch number two Louisville versus number one Stanford. Stanford has been a load. That is going to be a big task for them. But uh, what we've seen from them so far, it should be a really good one. Uh, Coach Jeff Waltz brought to you by Goodyear, helping you discover the road ahead. Goodyear, more driven. Coming up, another coach, just a win away from the final four stops by. He'll have to get by a team that's been a thorn in his side in the past. We'll get into all of it next, ESPN Radio. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. When I tell you that Maryland team was a buzzsaw, I'm not messing around. It didn't feel possible for a team to slow them down, and yet here we are. Terps are out, and an incredible upset from Texas. It's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz, ESPN Radio, ESPN App, Sirius XM, Channel 80. ESPN Radio is presented by Progressive Insurance, making it easy to bundle your home and car insurance. We're going to get to that game in just a second and the matchup that it sets up, which is a very juicy one. But if you are not watching concurrently to listening to us, and you could do both for sure, on mute, if you are not watching on ESPN right now, this Baylor-UConn game, you're missing out. I'm telling you, this is reminding me so much, Fitz, of that beginning to that Iowa-UConn game. The pace, the physicality here, even more so. People have families, and I don't think anyone's remembering that. It's just 
It's just barreling <laughs> people over. I keep yelling inside my head, she has a family! It's just, it's wild. Yeah, the wild thing is, you're right, is a combination of physicality and a bunch of girls that can just flat out shoot. I mean, shoot yeah. from anywhere, anytime. I mean, that's the thing is that you're seeing everybody go at each other so hard, but they're still shooting the ball really efficiently, which is surprising. I mean, I, I can never – it's so funny how often we seem to think it has to be one or the other, and then you watch this game and realize that both can be accomplished at once. But let's also acknowledge, I mean, these two teams between them have a total of three losses this year for a reason. Like, it's just <laughs> right. – they are phenomenal, phenomenal juggernauts offensively. To your point right now, uh, from three – UConn shooting 55% from beyond the arc right now in this game. Baylor, 40%. UConn, almost 50% from the field. Baylor sitting at 40. Um, but this is just this is just two teams coming into this, having really perfected what they do and doing it well. And unlike the beginning of that uh, UConn-Iowa game where we were looking for Paige Beckers early and she wasn't there, she's already got 13 here. Um, Carrington already has 11 for Baylor. So the stars are stepping up. We're seeing defensive plays, massive blocks, and the hustle. Yeah, the 11 pace. blocks in this yeah. game already. Yeah. 11 blocks. Yeah. So, I mean, that's crazy. This is, to me, I think perhaps, are we already at the final score of the Loyola Oregon State game or not quite yet? I mean, like you're looking <laughs> at it. Also, I I much prefer quarters to halves. Are you with me on this? Yeah, a thousand percent. That's one of the things that I really thought when the women started doing quarters that the guys would eventually just adopt the That's same usually thing. what they're doing. I'm surprised they haven't. Yeah, yeah, they're usually using the women's game as sort of a beta to test it. I think it's a much more enjoyable and cyclical. It feels it feels like those are nice times to catch your breath and, and get an idea of how the game's going. I don't like the halves as much. Um, and this this game has not disappointed. Man, I mean, I, like I said earlier, I feel for the Baylor fans. They've got their men's and women's teams both at it tonight uh, at the same time almost up. like yeah they're they're absolutely puckered uh, this UConn team by the way we mentioned it earlier when we were talking about that game versus Iowa as they head into the half here uh, Kristen Williams despite having some inconsistencies in the past was absolutely dynamic in the win over Iowa Avina Westbrook who uh, has been doing a lot of passing stepped up the two of them had 44 points on 19 of 32 shooting in that game against Iowa and so you look at this UConn team that kind of early on, maybe the expectations weren't as high. They're young. A lot of their veterans were inconsistent, but they're rounding into form to the point where I'm not wanting to play them if I'm anybody. Like, right, I, I, Stanford, South Carolina, those teams uh, were expected to be better. And a lot of people, Gino Oramiak uh, uh, as a part of this, thought that the seeding of this should not have set them up against Ayler, eight, Baylor in the final eight. Um, he claims they're supposed to be the number two, number one, and Baylor's quote-unquote number seven overall. He thinks they got it wrong. Well, I think one of the interesting things about this UConn team particularly is their ability to sort of adapt how they attack. And so in this game, one of the more interesting stats that I think tells a little bit of a story is they have a total of five assists in the first half. Like, they're playing a much more slash type of offense at this point. They're driving aggressively into Baylor as opposed to where it felt like against Iowa they were moving the ball a lot more than they are right now. So uh, interesting that they can sort of veer to whatever they think the weaknesses of their opponent and, and drive into it now. That being said, Baylor's up by two at the half. So, you know, what Baylor's doing offensively is working as well. I mean, but a 39 to 37 game at the half speaks to the efficiency of the way they're to, they're both running their offense right now. It's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz on ESPN Radio. The Baylor thing that's interesting is, like I said before, they were beating the brakes off people in the first two rounds. They were not able to put Michigan away. Uh, they they just couldn't. Um, you know, they forced it into overtime. It was a 20th straight win for them. 
But that was the first win in that 20 straight that was by single digits. So the question is, is Baylor, because of that experience against Michigan the other night, now equipped to be in you know, a poised team, an efficient team down the stretch of a tight game, or did they have too many blowouts? We've seen that before in the past, especially with their opponent, UConn, right? UConn has had those seasons where they're constantly dominating teams and they get tight down the stretch because they haven't been tasked with having to manage the clock, understand the situation. So I'd be interested to see if if this is a sign of, of things to come, that Baylor started to struggle when the competition got better in the Sweet 16, or if that was just good practice for them in what could be a tight game tonight. Well, because i, I got to agree with you, Sarah, too. When you start thinking about what we're going to see in this women's bracket particularly, the last standing four teams are all going to be incredibly good, right? So where we've seen in the men's side, there's been a lot of normalization, and there might be a couple of great teams there are four or five teams, I think, capable of winning the championship mm-hmm. on the women's side. So the ability to maintain and the ability to sort of fight through a close game is going to be important. On the other side, uh, the, the the men's tournament, there's games in action right now, too. Houston leading Oregon State 28-17 to in the first half. Again, interesting, uh, the ladies, the pace, right? Just outpacing the dudes. Um, and and this this matchup, you know, Houston was an interesting number two seed, Um but they've they've certainly been able to prove that they belong and and um you know I think you look at the win over Syracuse, it's their first trip to the Elite Eight in thirty seven years. And they haven't been back within shouting range in a couple, right? Um so they've they've had some luck in terms of I don't know if I call it luck. Let's say def- let's say it's a combination of a bad shooting from opponents and great defense. Their three opponents so far in the tournament have made just 39% of their shots inside the arc. And so is that their defense? Are they just closing? Are they doing the right things? Or is it a matter of some ugly play from the opponent? Um, they're, they're lucky in that Oregon State, the, the, the team they face right now, is their fourth straight double-digit seed in the tournament. Talk about a path that's just uh, got uh, lined with gold. Yeah, and that's going to be the great question is how but Houston gets a 2 seed uh, or gets the get to gets to this point as a 6 seed, but they come out of the AAC where frankly this is where having everything be in conference all year I think actually really hurts the ability to figure out how good some of these teams mm-hmm. are. I mean, Houston goes through the year 27 and 3, but they rip through doing that in a conference that may not have as much Street cred as, a, as some other conferences. That being said, Memphis just won the NIT. So, you know, Memphis is looking at it saying, hey, maybe our conference was a little un- underrepresented and we're better than people think. Well, Houston ran roughshod through that conference. This is just a tough year to figure out how good Houston was going to be because we didn't see them against the normal powers. Even the out-of-conference schedule that they could have gotten wasn't going to give them the shine that most schools would get in that situation. So I think Houston came in as sort of a wild card. I don't fault most people for not... Mm-hmm. Houston and figuring out that they were going to go on a run. And, of course, the real wild card is Oregon State. No team in the last 36 years has won three tournament games as an underdog of six point or, points or more, according to Stats and Info. And what you're seeing is them shooting better than you could have expected. Their three-pointers are falling um, much, much higher than during the regular season, and they've been tremendous defensively. I, if you watch that game, it was ugly, and I didn't watch all of it, to be honest, against Loyola, but their closeouts, their speed on the defensive side, um, they have held all three of their opponents so far in the tournament to fewer than .97 points per possession. That was the average output for a South Carolina men's team that was 6-15 and this season. So they are making their opponents look 
brutal on the offensive side, which again could be why we're seeing a low-scoring affair here early on. Yeah, and and that's going to be the interesting like when where does the dam break? And and even is that is that a, is that a beaver pun? At, yeah, well, I mean, uh, <laughs> uh, maybe I wasn't it. smart enough to think of that. Yeah, yeah, uh, okay. Uh, yeah, but I do think that there's some element of, you know, for Houston, it's fun to watch as it goes through the process. But I, it's hard for me to believe that Houston's going to step through all of this and find themselves in the same conversation as, as the, the Baylors and Gonzagas of the world. Like, while I've enjoyed watching this run, I don't think this Houston team's on that level. So, you know, let's just watch it and see where it goes. But, you know, I, I don't have some great expectation that this Cinderella will continue all the way till midnight. Yeah, I agree with you. I don't see either of these teams hanging with the very top. Um, I've been gnawing on that pun you made, and I was thinking to myself, you know, damn, you would make a pun like that. Um, by the way, that was three puns in there. I hope you picked up on all uh-huh. three yeah, of that them. Was, that was well done. Have much you ever asked Google how much wood a woodchuck would chuck, by the way? You should. How much wood could a woodchuck chuck if a woodchuck could chuck wood? Yeah, just ask Google. It'll give me an answer. Okay, I'll be looking for that. Uh, we will continue to make beaver puns. No, we won't. Nope, we're not gonna because they're not gonna I like go. My job. They're, yeah, they're not gonna go well from here on out. Is all I could say about that. I think we tackled the easy ones, and now we're just gonna stay away. But we will keep you updated on that game, and of course, the second half of that incredible uh, UConn Baylor game that's uh, that's just uh, gonna kill us all if it stays at the pace it's at. But coming up next, we're gonna switch gears to some NFL talk. We briefly mentioned this on the Friday show. Talking about the 17-game season for the NFL, we wanted to bring in Seth Wickersham, who wrote that great story about the negotiations that led to the recent CBA, which is now going to be a decade in place, and just how bad it is for the players, including this edition of another regular season game. It's next. You're listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. Looks like we're headed for a 17-week regular season in the NFL, which has many fans rejoicing but it has players speaking out loudly on why they hate it. How did we get here? We'll try and figure that out with an expert. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, and Sirius XM. Channel 80, we're presented by Progressive Insurance. Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz, we'll keep you updated on all the action that's going on right now during the show, but we wanted to change gears, talk a little bit about one of the bigger stories over the weekend as uh, Sarah and I found out that it looks like a 17th game has been added for the Bears and the Raiders, and it, they're taking each other on. So Enemy! Uh, obviously, <laughs> so we're going to figure out some way to celebrate that entire experience in, in Vegas. Vegas. But it, Drunk. it raises a real question of how we got there because we see athletes all over Twitter Loudly screaming, Alvin Kamara being one, that this is dumb and that they shouldn't be doing it. So in a world where everything's collectively bargained, how did that happen? We're going to head to the Goodyear hotline where Seth Wickersham joins us, ESPN writer. And Seth, you wrote an article, a great article that was up on ESPN.com last month uh, that was about how we got to 17 games. I've seen so many players speaking out loudly against it. How contentious was the process of even getting to this point between the players and the owners? Oh, thanks, guys. It was so contentious that, you know, DeMora Smith had to release a statement after the CBA barely passed last year, passed by 60 votes, trying to explain himself. Um, you know, in the story that Don Van Natt and I authored together, we tried to really look at, like, how this came to be because, you know, for years, DeMora Smith, the head of the NFL Players Association, had gone locker room to locker room, preparing players for this latest round of collective bargaining agreement. And in those meetings, he would raise the idea of an expanded regular season. And 
at the time, it seemed like the league wanted to expand it to 18 games. And he was so defiant and resolute about the league, about, about their workload not expanding by two games. And he would, he, at one point he told the locker room, he said, um, he goes, if I were, he goes, I don't get a vote, but if I did, I would say H to the hell F no on 18 games. But as it turns out, 17 games was quite different. You know, Seth, it feels like there is this uh, amalgam of things that led to this. Some of it was player apathy who kind of voted and didn't really read. Some of it was the disparate wants and desires of someone who's a superstar versus someone who might have a very short career. Um, the, the haves and the have nots. Um, is it in the end a nearly impossible job for someone to negotiate on behalf of a group of people with very different desires versus a core of owners that all can expect a half century of ownership and wealth being really all that matters to them. I mean, it's very clear they have one vision versus a a bunch of players that are coming at it from different ways. It's absolutely an impossible job, but I will say this, the owners were the ones who wanted to negotiate early they wanted to do that because of the news that we saw a week ago when all of the new broadcast deals got done. Because they knew that if they could guarantee 10 more years of labor peace, that they would have a great piece of leverage and upper hand in negotiating with broadcast partners. So they were the ones who wanted to end the collective bargaining agreement early. They were the ones coming to the players and saying, what will it take? The players could have just written out the collective bargaining agreement if they wanted to. So it was the owners and the league that wanted to do that. And I think that where you saw the dismay from the players is there was a lot of them, almost 50%, who said, look, they're coming to us. Now's our chance. Guaranteed contracts, shorter workload, less drug testing, all these things that, you know, maybe that they want, they were like, now's our chance to get it. And, but they knew that the owners also wanted to expand the regular season. And so they were like, some of them were like, look, what, what will, uh, we know that you want an expanded regular season and we know that you want to end the collective bargaining agreement early so you have the upper hand with, with, uh, with broadcast partners. What, what can we get? And there's the other part that said, look, they're coming to the table for us. Forget 17 games. Let's get a better deal for 16 games. And there was a huge divide among the players. And what ended up happening was almost half the players were just irritated because they felt that, that, a 17th game was just on the table and was a fait accompli and there was nothing anyone could do about it. And they were going to get locked out if they didn't agree to it and how they got there, they were incredibly angry about, and they felt like that DeMora Smith didn't communicate that they were negotiating based off of 17 games. DeMora Smith will say, I absolutely communicated it. And you know, it's, I can't be responsible for 2000 players, Hmm. whether they pay attention or not. But there was a huge problem and a huge disconnect and a lot of fights with a lot of the league's premier players about that. J.J. Watt, Aaron Rodgers, Richard Sherman, all of them spoke up in meetings, or at least, Jay, or at least Aaron Rodgers and Richard Sherman did, angry about this 17th game. We're talking to ESPN senior writer Seth Wickersham on Spain and Fitz, ESPN Radio, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. So let me oversimplify, Seth, and just, just help me figure this out. Because I want to care about player health and safety. I, I do, and it matters to me from the human being side. The, the football fan in me, though, loves the idea of 17 games. I just want to watch more football. I want to care about the human beings that are playing 
But in theory, if the human beings that are playing weren't willing to lock out or do whatever it took to make sure that they didn't have to play 17 games, how am I supposed to have more passion for it than they do? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, And I don't think that there's a simple answer to that. I mean, you know, people might say, okay, you know, there's increased, you know, off-season, you know, not as much time that you need to be around the facility, more time off. You know, if the league activates a 17th game, they take away one preseason game. So you'll have three preseason games next year, likely. You know, maybe that's less wear and tear, but, you know, the point remains. I I don't know how you square those things other than you have just enough players who agreed that the trade-off was worth it. And remember, after the vote, a lot of them asked if they could have the vote back Mm -hmm. and re-vote once they realized what was in the actual deal. Mm. So I have one last quick one for you. And by the way, uh, Seth Wickersham also has a new book coming out you could pre-order called It's Better to Be Feared about the Patriots dynasty if everybody wants to go uh, go ahead and pre-order that now. Um, what does this mean going forward? Uh, there are certainly players that we've seen and former players also commenting on how this might affect practice schedules, preseason, ways to avoid injury because it's already hard to get players through a 16-game season. What do you expect to happen? I don't know. I mean, I, I wish that I knew, but all of those questions are very fair. And I mean, you know, in the abstract, we can talk all about, you know, lighter workloads during the season, less wear and tear on the player's body as the season goes on. But as we all know, once the season starts, coaches are not always inclined to give more time off, especially if the team isn't playing as well. I mean, everybody is, is focused on the thing that's right in front of them, which is the next game, and doing everything they possibly can to win that game. I have no idea how this is going to play out. I have no idea the effect that it's going to have on players' bodies. Maybe it'll have a minimum effect. I honestly don't know. One thing it'll clearly do is I think that it's going to, I think you're going to see a lot of the passing records get reset by some of the premier players in the next couple of years because just having another game with the way the rules are now and the way that, you know, the game's just engineered towards passing and offense, I think is really going to lend itself to, to bigger numbers. You guys can follow him on Twitter, at Seth Wickersham again. New book coming out, It's Better to Be Feared. We'll get you to talk about that uh, soon, Seth. I'm sure you can get that wherever you get your books. We'll tweet out a link also. Seth, as always, we appreciate you coming out, my friend. Can't wait. Great to talk to you guys, as always. Thank you. All right, we're going to get you caught up on all of the NCAA tournament action going on. We'll We'll do that for you next. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app at Sirius XM, Channel 80. Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. Again, we said we'd get you updated. Baylor right now up by three over UConn, number two seeded Baylor. Take it on number one seeded UConn. They're up by three, 47-44. About four and a half to go in the third there, so we'll keep you updated on how that plays out. Also, on the men's side, two seed Houston doubling up Oregon State, the 12 seed, 34-17, to and that one at the half. So, uh, obviously, we will make sure that you're kept up to date, but now we're going to head over to the Goodyear Hotline where we're going to be joined by somebody that is feeling good right now. Texas women's head coach Vic Schaefer joins us on the Goodyear Hotline. Coach, thanks so much for the time. Congratulations on the big win. I'll be the first to admit it. I said on Friday, nobody can shut down Maryland's offense. It just doesn't happen. You guys did, <laughs> and you get the big upset. So what was it that was that you guys were able to do against Maryland that nobody else was this year? Hey, well, first of all, thanks for having me. I appreciate the opportunity Uh you know, our kids just really wouldn't be denied. Um, they, uh, 
they took it personal. Uh, I think when uh, when the you know the the experts across the country said that you know they were going to hang a hundred on us, and uh, I just think they have a lot of pride in what they do and how they do it, and um, so they went out and you know they they really played hard. Uh, we got down nine to nothing early, but you know really really didn't flinch and came back and uh, you know played really well. And uh, ran some good stuff on offense, and and uh, again just really competed. I thought our competitive spirit was off the chart uh, last night. I appreciate you not just uh, you know saying it like it was, which is holding the nation's highest scoring team to thirty points below their average in an upset. I mean, it was wild, just unbelievable, Coach. Congratulations, such a fun game, and I love that. You know, even Drake is posting videos, watching by the fireplace, talking about how he's he's now a Texas fan after watching the game. Um, it sets you up for quite a matchup with number one South Carolina tomorrow night, seven Eastern on ESPN. And you know Dawn Staley and her Gamecocks well. Four years ago in Dallas, you were with uh, Mississippi State and fell to the Gamecocks in the national championship. Is there a little bit of an extra edge here in wanting to get uh, Dawn and, and her squad back for that one? Uh, you know, I don't think so. That was a different day, different different team. Uh, I said this uh, today, uh, I think today earlier in the media, you know, what people don't realize about that year, we had played Connecticut in the late game. And so our game didn't tip till after nine. We didn't get back to the Anatole Hotel in Dallas until one fifteen in the morning. After we did media and everything else, my team walked into the Anatole Hotel at one fifteen in the morning and there were 5,000 people in the lobby waiting to see them. <laughs> so it was, it was a huge uh, upset, a di- draining. Yeah. Yeah, it's just a different time. And uh, again, I played, we've played uh, South Carolina a lot since then. And, uh, you know, we've had some really, some knockdown drag outs with them. So, um, you know, just uh, excited for this team, excited for the opportunity. And, uh, you know, we'll see what happens. We're talking to Texas women's head coach Vic Schaefer on Spain and Fitz. Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. You mentioned you've played South Carolina a bunch before, but this is such a different year in general. How much of any sort of past can you take into what we're seeing this year when you prep everybody for basketball in a COVID world? Well, it's, it is different. It's um, When you take over a program, get the job on April 6th, you don't see your team – um, and can't have them together for a workout until, um, you know, the, the last part of July. And then you can only have two in the gym at a time. The first time we had any kind of five-on-five was, you know, uh, September. And, and so you're trying to, you know, develop a, uh, a, a, a program with new players that you didn't recruit and, uh, you know, and, 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 and just develop some trust and, and uh, chemistry. Kids can't do anything together. Um, we can't. We can't. Um, you know, we can't have them over for dinner at my house. We can't have them go to church with us like we normally do, would if they wanted to. Uh, it's just. It's really difficult, and that's why I admire these kids so much. They have. They have really done a great job. They've stayed healthy, um, but. 
they they've really been special um, and, and have just done a, an absolutely amazing job and and that's why we're playing so well now our chemistry uh, our buy-in right now is is really really good and um, you know I, I think I think that's what you're seeing right now is a team that has great chemistry they're connected um, they're into each other and, and got each other's back and what they do and so this is what you see. It's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. We're presented by Progressive Insurance. Talking to Texas women's head coach Vic Schaefer. They'll take on South Carolina tomorrow night, 7 Eastern on ESPN. I am pumped for the Charlie collier Aliyah boston matchup. How do you see that going, Coach? Well, I think, you know, both of those kids are, those are two of the top ten players in the country, regardless of position. And, uh, you know, both of them are, are uh they have tremendous, you know. They have games that 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 can do different things and and uh, and do something similar. And so it's, um, you know, I know for us, Charlie is early in the year, earlier in the year, did a lot, carried us a, a lot of nights, and you know, um, and, and if we didn't get twenty five and you know eighteen or twenty from her, we we were going to have a hard time winning and. Now we've, we've, we're really, uh, have really become a, a complete team. Our, our guards are playing well. They're shooting it extremely well. When you go look at what we've done in the last five, six games, our, our statistics are completely different. And, uh, you know, Bojo and Celeste are really shooting it at a good number. And, and uh, our point guard, Cairo, is playing extremely well. So, um, you know, it, it can. It's. I'm, I'm hopeful it'll be a great matchup. I know that that Charlie's going to really be ready. And and again, but you know, it's for us. We're going to have to be more than just the Charlie Collier show. We're going to mm-hmm. have to really be, you know, connected and and play well. We're going to have to have you know four people in double figures like we've been doing. And uh, you know, if we do that, we'll have a chance. Coach, if there's anything I learned, I'm not going to run my mouth and say anything negative about what you guys – I'm wrong. You guys absolutely did what I didn't think would be done. Congratulations. We really appreciate you coming on. It's fun to watch this run for you guys. Thanks so much for joining us. Hey, appreciate the time. And, uh, hey, stay tuned. I believe the breast is yet to come. Praise the okay. Lord. Welcome Oh, we're going to call that a guarantee. Bulletin board Woo! material. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much, Coach. I, you know, and that game, by the way, <laughs> tomorrow night, 7 Eastern on ESPN. Six-seeded Texas takes on uh, first-seeded uh, South Carolina. And Sarah, I always think it's interesting, too, because he's from Texas, you know, and you're going back oh, you home. Can like, tell. I, I just wonder how much more the phone blows up every single time anything happens when you're that close to home. Like, it's just, it's got to be a cool feeling. And as weird as the year has been for COVID and everything else, to be able to experience it close to home. Uh, Got to be cool for Coach. And by the way, Coach, is brought to you by My Computer Career Training for a Better Life. And we've continued to have all eyes on this. Baylor up by seven now, 51-44 over UConn. About three minutes to go in the third. And, uh, again, Oregon State is uh, losing to Houston 34-17 at the half on the men's side. We'll keep you updated on that. But this Baylor-UConn game, absolutely, Sarah, living up to the billing. They are playing, I think, controlled uh, chaos is the best mm-hmm. way to describe it. I'll take that from you. It, it feels like that's what they're doing offensively in this game. Completely agree. Baylor, huge on the boards. And Dijonay Carrington has been unstoppable. Behind the back to the lay-in uh, on the defensive side, um, it's been it's been absolutely up to billing. And at this point, UConn's got some work to do. 
to catch up. Um, this this is partly why Gino was complaining about this matchup coming now, right? By the way, how professional am I for not even mentioning that Coach Vic Schaefer accidentally said the breast is yet to come? Oh, wait, are we still on? Did we not yes, throw to commercial? Oh, okay, I'm so sorry. I thought that I had managed to go mm-hmm. without mentioning that, oh, uh, that he accidentally said the breast is yet to come. Uh, by the way, I did it again. If we're you still can on. hear us during the commercial, it sounds like Ric Flair. We're just going woo at all these highlights. <laughs> all right, we're going to switch to the men's tournament. Bring in an expert who's going to who get us ready for the final four next on Spain and Fitz. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. Welcome back to Spain and Fitz. Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz on ESPN Radio, ESPN app, Sirius XM channel eighty. Keep talking all things tournament. We'll keep you updated. Man, Baylor looking like they're trying to take out Paige Buckets in UConn. And it looks like Oregon State's uh, saying their goodbyes. Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz joining us now. ESPN College Basketball Analyst Lafonso Ellis. Lafonso, thanks for the time. My pleasure. My pleasure. Got a little ACDC rolling in on us. That's right. That's right. Let's go. Let's go. Let's Let's start with the game that's on tonight. Were you surprised uh, to see that it looks like this could be the end for Oregon State? Or did you think that they'd kind of uh, out, outdone the expectations enough already? No, Sarah. It's When you're playing against Houston, I mean, they're the second-best offensive rebounding team in the country. They get 40% of their misses. And so when you're playing against those guys, that that's something that you have to be aware of early. And 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 Grimes has been Quinn Grimes has been just absolutely sensational throughout the NCAA tournament. And it's interesting, Sarah, because uh, you know having played, have, having had the privilege of playing in the NBA for 11 years, when you have a guy uh, that's like the guy, like uh, Buddy Beheim, who was scoring the basketball so well, or an Ethan Thompson for Oregon State who's scored over 20 points a game in the NCAA tournament. Uh, an NBA mindset defensively is you're going to focus all of your attention to that individual and make everyone else beat you, right? And Kevin Sampson, having spent, uh, I think he's, what, three or four years uh, in the NBA as an assistant, et cetera, uh, I knew coming into this game that he was going to focus all of his attention on Ethan Thompson. I think Ethan had one point in the first half. And, of course, Houston's been able to knock down shots and get on the offensive glass. So uh, Oregon State is playing hard. Is this just Houston's defense is taking them out of all their offensive actions as well. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio. Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz talking to LaFonso Ellis. Uh, so let's look at the other game tonight. Arkansas taking on Baylor. Arkansas struggled. I mean, Oral Roberts gave them everything they could handle. So is that a statement sure. to how good Arkansas is, or was that just one of those days? Yeah, no, Fitzy, Arkansas is, is really good. Now, it's interesting because they've been, I think there's three games now that they've been down double digits. They've, they've had to fight back, and they just can't afford to do that against Baylor. And Baylor, their defense is so good. They, they keep you in front. They don't give you up, give a lot of dribble penetration. And, of course, they're the best three-point shooting team in the country at 42%. The thing with Arkansas that's going to be key in that game, though, is in Arkansas's last five losses, they turned the basketball over 17 times a game, and now all of a sudden you're feeding into that Baylor transition game where Davion Mitchell, Jared Butler, Macy Oteague, so good at getting to the rim. And so as your defense gets back and fills up the middle to try to get them to take away their layups at the basket, now all of a sudden they're running to the three-point line and knocking down three. So the key for Arkansas is to not turn that basketball over, limit their turnovers, not give Baylor easy points and make them have to score over extended hands in the half court. You know, I'm looking at, uh, you know, the 
the the Pac-12 with three teams in the Elite Eight for the second yeah. time, the first time since 2001. I think it's it's uh-huh. easy to try to compare them or to kind of find some through line. Instead, I'd just like to ask you, um, of those teams, who you think has the best shot to really keep this run going? <laughs> wow. That's that's a tough one between UCLA and USC. I would say, but what happens there in the, in the NCAA tournament, styles tend to carry, especially on the defensive end. And USC, they'll play a lot of zone, but they'll also play your man. And their length, they're the second tallest team in all of college basketball, only second to Florida State, averaging 6'8 uh, across the board. And they do a terrific job in that zone at – if you do get it in the middle, they have tremendous length with Isaiah Mobley, 6'10", Evan Mobley, 7 feet tall, and they, they, they do a great job of altering and blocking shots when you do get it in there. And then if you're able to get the zone compressed and you kick it out, and all of a sudden they're using that perimeter length to take away your three-point shot. So UCLA is better offensively, but defensively USC is so much better because of the length that they have to be able to cover up areas particularly in the zone. So I have to give USC the slight advantage over, US, over UCLA. I'm talking to ESPN College basketball analyst Lafonso Ellis on Spain and Fitz. And, you know, with all this talk about the Pac-10, there's still like Gonzaga's just sitting here undefeated, right? When this is all said and done, <laughs> right. if Gonzaga right. goes in and wins it all, like what's the real conversation about them? How, how good historically is this team in your eyes? Wow. They, they, they are complete. Uh, Fitzy, it's a, it, it's interesting because I watch them on the offensive end and whether they're in the half court or in the transition game, they, they flow into their offense so beautifully. And as they get into the middle and you draw a secondary defender, the awareness and the alertness to be able to get the basketball on the hands of the open shooter. And if the defense is good enough to make a really good second rotation, that basketball is out of whoever received it last hands now getting it to the third guy who's open and so their their ball movement within their half court offensive attack is superb and of course they're one of the fastest teams in the country they're one of the fastest tempos in the country and so on makes and misses it's Jalen Suggs coming at you as fast as he can trying to get to the middle of the floor get to the front of the rim and then if he doesn't he's looking to kick it out to Corey Kispert who's one of the best three-point shooters in all of college basketball and then when they do get it uh, flowing in the half court, they're looking to get it inside to Drew Timmy. 6'10", can finish with either hand around the rim. Uh, he's got the best footwork of any, co- any big man in all of college basketball as well. So when you talk about all of the pieces, I mean, Joel Ayayi is their two guard. Anton Watson as their four and a traditional four in that. He can score with his back to the basket, but they don't really need him to do that. So he's a rebounder and defender. And then they have a deep bench, guys like Andrew Nimhard, who is a starter at Florida. And so they, they, they have all the pieces on the offensive end. They have a significant guys coming off the bench. And so should they go on and win it, they could go down as one of the greatest teams of all time because of the great overall collegiate talent that they have. Most people will be able to argue against that because we look at teams like North Carolina when Michael Jordan and those guys were there with all of the future or now uh, past pro talent that they had. Uh, Gonzaga doesn't necessarily have that one through four, 
But certainly Jalen Suggs is going to play in the league. Corey Kispert's going to play in the league. They won't be quite that level of talent. But still, if they can go wire to wire, they will go down as one of the greatest teams of all time. And I don't think they get enough credit either, Fitzy, for how good they are defensively. We focus so much on the offense, and deservedly so. But this team is really good both positionally and with their help defense as well. They're really, really balanced. Yeah, and LaFonso, it's so hard to not take into account the future careers of players when we have that hindsight to use. Yeah. We can't do that right now because we're looking at teams. And, right. and in theory, what they do in the NBA shouldn't affect whether we think that they're some of the That's greats right. at the collegiate level. But uh, an analyst, LaFonso Ellis, with us here on Spain and Fitz. Talk about what Michigan's doing. I mean, what a weird season. And then to be doing this now without Isaiah Livers, five different players during their three tournament wins, either leading the team and scoring outright or sharing. It's been super impressive. It, it really has. And, you know, we there's so much to say about the transfer portal, right? And yet, Shondi Brown, who amongst Mike Smith, who they brought over, Franz Wagner, you know, you don't really hear him mention much, but I thought even when he transferred over, I thought he would give them a defensive edge with the ability to be able to knock down shots when called upon. And how good has he been, really, in his absence? And so, this is another team with Hunter Dickinson on the inside, traditional big man, plays with his back to the basket, 7-1, and likes to be a back to the basket guy. They also have all the pieces. Eli, Eli Brooks, I don't know if there's the, uh, in fact, they're not as explosive offensively as, the, as Gonzaga, but in terms of having all of the pieces, they, they have all of the pieces as well. And so, uh, Juwan Howard has done a remarkable job, a remarkable job of losing one of his best players and yet being able to say, all right, Chandi, uh, we, we don't have him, but we're going to keep you in your same role coming off the bench, but we're going to need you to provide some offensive firepower for us. And he's been able to do that. I mean, what a, what a tremendous job Juwan Howard has done with that team. Well, we uh, we have been loving watching it, especially those who are keeping notes on guys who haven't gotten NBA jobs and show up in the college game and say, okay, fine, I'll do it yeah. here. I'll, I'll prove you wrong here. Yeah. Uh, thanks so much <laughs> for the right. insight, right. LaFonso. Really appreciate it. Appreciate you, my no, friend. I appreciate you guys having me on. You guys have a great night. ESPN College Basketball Analyst LaFonso Ellis brought to you by Wendy's, proud sponsor of the 2021 John R. Wooden Men's and Women's Player of the Year. It's Spain and Fitz. We're trying to focus. This Baylor-UConn game is giving me multiple heart attacks. Uh, We got Didi hurt. We got Paige getting hot. Uh, We will keep you updated, and we will get you updated on Pandemic Madness. The Bracket, next, ESPN Radio. You're listening to the Spain and Fitz Podcast. It's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz, ESPN Radio, ESPN App, Sirius XM, Channel 80. Don't forget to subscribe to the Spain and Fitz podcast. You can sometimes get cool pre-party, post-party, digital-only content. we got to do another one of those soon. It's been breakneck speed here with all the tourney stuff and other stuff we're working on, but we'll get some of those uh, digital-only parties going for you soon, and you can, of course, catch up on all the content you miss. Go to the Apple podcast app, iTunes, or the ESPN app, and subscribe. ESPN Radio is presented by Progressive Insurance. Drivers who save with Progressive save over $750 on average. Call or click today. Find out if they could save you hundreds on your car insurance. This was uh, an incredible drive turnaround, 19-0 run for UConn, but Baylor not out of it with about uh, four minutes to play or so. Uh, This is still quite a game. 66-61, UConn is up Paige Becker's doing her thing, 28 points. Um, Dee Dee Richards with the hamstring injury. That's really where things took a turn, and Baylor started to slump. So uh, this this one's going down to the wire. And also going down to the wire 
our pandemic madness bracket. That's right. We are counting the things that got us through 2020. And occasionally, by mistake, we've included things that got us through 2021. But you know what? That's probably because number two seeded alcohol got us through most of it. And we were still drunk trying to make this bracket. The point is, we've gotten to the Sweet 16. The Southeast region was decided over the weekend. The last dance taking out the Bernie meme, and rightfully so. Bernie was 2021 and had a short-lived time, whereas most of us have rewatched the last dance, what, a couple hundred times, Fitz? All of us? Uh, each of us? Once, once. Nope. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Tiger King <laughs> taking out D-Nice's Club Quarantine. America, you stupid. That is a terrible choice. Tiger King got us through about a couple days or weeks early on and then really jumped the shark and everyone involved was terrible. And you took, I mean, D-Nice, he's still keeping it going. Yeah, I saw a D-Nice commercial the other day for a particular truck and I was like, look at that. Dude, it's Q-rating. Yeah, it was like D-Nice toilet paper and Amazon and Zoom that like really thrived in terms of just living right during the quarantine. Uh, pet snuggles, 49 point something percent lost to online shopping, just over 50%. That was the tightest we've seen. And frankly, I know that online shopping was necessary because of the global pandemic, but how anything could beat pet snuggles is beyond me. Yeah. This just proves too many voters don't have pets. That's the yeah. only thing I get. Or you and, need to snuggle with your catch pet. Catch up, dudes. I mean, that's straight therapy every time. Like, I don't know what I would have done without a dog lying directly on top of me for most of the quarantine. <laughs> I needed it. It was like a weighted blanket with a face, which yeah, is a I, good I, thing. I mean, I, I would say that I'm past that, but I'm not. I've got one on my foot as we speak. Like, yeah. that's just the way it goes. That's you know? just how it needs to be. John Krasinski's good news, which was great, but short-lived, uh, lost out to what much longer-lived long walks, which uh, got most of us through it and also allowed us to appreciate the architecture, the gardens, the landscape choices of our neighbors uh, more so than ever before. I definitely know my way around my neighborhood better. So I, I am a little amazed as we look through the first round across the board. All the one seeds advanced, all the two seeds advanced, but three of the four six seeds beat mm. three seeds. I mean, wow. it's, a, it's just a trend there. It's a little bit of a trend. Yeah. Uh, you know what? Four, I'm not going to lie. Too. Uh, normally during this part of the show, I would tell you to go and vote, but it's not up yet because there's too much happening. Okay. I'm trying to focus on the bracket and the show and this Baylor UConn game. So as soon as the show ends in just a couple of minutes, I will put up the following bracket, uh, uh, matchups for you to vote on. We're going to do the entire West side of the sweet 16. It's going to be a number one Schitt's Creek versus a number five redecorating the house. That's it's going to be, be a landslide. number six YouTube Versus a number two alcohol landslide often go together. It's going to be a number one sweatpants and a number four bulk toilet paper. That one could be sneaky close. Like, I mean, sweatpants are great, but bulk toilet paper really mattered through there. And like, you're going to need a lot of sweatpants if you don't have enough bulk toilet paper. That is true. You might have to use your sweatpants. Uh, Uh, Also, I was surprised how much wiping your butt was a big part of that first voting i thought peloton might be closer but people were really into toilet paper so some people have think... pelotons everybody has a butt that's no, i don't <laughs> want to presume uh sweatpants should absolutely <laughs> absolutely run away with that though in my opinion i know that we at times had to wonder about our toilet paper supply but i still take it for granted more so than i understood the benefits of wearing sweatpants for 365 straight days i mean it's really been magical uh the final matchup number six cooking Taking on number two, TikTok, that I think might be a reflection of the age of our listeners and followers. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm with you on that. I mean, TikTok is a is a delight, and it still makes me laugh all the time. But I really like I, I don't know. For me, cooking is a great distraction, and I got really creative in 2020, just like trying virtually anything. You know, so I, I think cooking. I I think it, for me, cooking would be the edge. But I think our voters are going to go TikTok. Yeah, I think so too. For me, it would absolutely be cooking, and I think us olds that get into the nesting part of our lives, uh, that feels like a nice way to spend time at home if you can't go out and see friends. It's like, oh, you know, you hang out with your spouse, you pour a nice bottle of wine, many of which I went through, and you find a recipe, you cook together. We started pulling out the Cuisinart. We made a gooey butter cake together. Like it, it was like the movies. There was music playing, like some old kind of soul playlist, and I, I think I might have at one point put some frosting on his nose like it it was not it was right out of a movie i i love your your music playlist thing too because there are different eras of this quarantine that are defined by the music i was listening to while i was actually like cooking so yeah i mean the entire winter was spent listening to sinatra while i tried to figure out how to do some (laughs) random thing i've never done before we're so old i know (laughs) you know i'm I'm willing to admit it Uh, but you know the the funny thing is this is all going to set us up for a one versus two that the world's been waiting for we're going to end up i think out of this getting schitt's creek versus alcohol that is going to be a one-two matchup. That's the that's the Baylor Yukon of this whole thing. Like I think maybe we got that matchup too early because that could be in the finals and people wouldn't know how to how to handle it. Listen, I'm telling you, sweatpants versus alcohol is what I see in our future, and that that's is going to be. What if we end up with sweatpants versus pantsless brawless, which is coming out of the east at some point? I mean, the the other thing with sweatpants we have to understand is there's a real, not only a comfort to it, but a need to it. Because for most of us, anything that didn't have a stretchy waist wasn't going to fit midway through That's quarantine. Right. So, That's right. You know, there's there's a few that you Peloton's were out in the first round. So all the people that took care of yourselves, <laughs> y'all y'all lost in the yeah. first round. Now we're, so did we're, virtual we're, workouts. No one was yeah. into that. That like yeah. got destroyed in the first round. Right. Well, it's, it's the plumps that are moving forward. All right. So, you know, the plumpy pants are going ahead, moving forward on this. Sweatpants are going to have a heck of a run. But they were they were more necessary than I think we uh, we realized. They really were. They really became quite necessary. And it also allowed you to not be so judgy of yourself during a very difficult time because it wasn't quite as noticeable and uncomfortable when you gained the quarantine 10 or more. Whatever. No judgment. Uh, I want to point out in in regards to your choice of of playlist Sinatra, it's an interesting one. And it does feel very like, let me go ahead and pour myself a a firm scotch drink and get down to business in the kitchen. I my Spotify year in review, my most listened to artist was Bob Marley. I mean, that that is me trying to set the tone in my house like it's going to be fine. Everything's chill. I'm, I'm basically on an island. It's good. Given the way that I usually relax, I think most people would expect that I would have the Bob yes. Marley playlist. Yeah, but I don't no, think no. I think you hear that in your head yeah, without that, needing no, to actually you, play it. It's just on the sound.